So I began making interactive uh, sound installations before there was the category sound installations. I started making installations with sound in them, multimedia installations in high school in New Jersey. That was really around 1969, 1969, I think would be. Good morning, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. Queens-based artist Liz Phillips has been creating interactive multimedia installations for 50 years. She combines audio and visuals with new technologies to create experiences that are unique for each visitor. Her work has been on display at top art museums around the world, including the Whitney Museum of American Art and Lincoln Center. She's also exhibited installations at festivals, alternative spaces, and even public spaces. Most recently, Liz and her daughter, portraitist Heidi Howard, collaborated to create Relative Fields in a Garden at the Queen's Museum. It brought together Heidi's portraiture and Liz's sound work to create interactive sound fields using wave transmissions. Today, Liz talks to Epicenter's co-founder and creative director, Nitin Mokul, about what led to her creating sound installations before the category even existed, and how she uses sound to help people tune into natural landscapes, and what the future of sound art looks like. I began making interactive uh, sound installations before there was the category sound installations. I started making installations with sound in them, multimedia installations in high school in New Jersey. That was really around 1969, 1969, I think would be. Yeah, the first one had large pieces of metal in it with different fabrics hanging into these holes that were square of metal on the floor. And as people walked in it, they hit a pressure pad, which activated a tape recorder, which played back water sounds from my brook where I lived at home. So I had walked along the brook and recorded different murmurs, babbles uh, that the brook made. And the fabrics were lit with lights that changed so that they were translucent and transparent and people could touch them. So you almost walk through this fabric maze. So the pad was something that wasn't like digital. It was actually just the, there was nothing digital at the time. There's no digital technology. In fact, the, well, there was a few great big giant computers at places like IBM that took punch cards, but there was no, general digital technology and in fact like four years later i was building simple if a and b are true then c 
simple digital bit circuits for logic within my installations, but they were like just the digital yay if then circuits that were first our first bit of technology. And I was using them right away because if somebody did something and somebody did something else, then I wanted to compare their stuff to come up with it. What led you to like start doing this work? Was it like training in visual art or was it? Um... Well, I, I was completely trained. Well, I was young, but I was always making visual art and things with nature. So I was making wildflower gardens with wildflowers that were so-called impossible to transplant, finding them the right environments, because I spent a lot of time with in the woods. So I was always building things with nature and observing how plants, particularly interested in how plants grew, what lived where. So you weren't living in a city at that time? No, I yeah. grew up in the suburbs in New Jersey in Anglewood Cliffs. I was the kid who got up on Arbor Day to recite all the found flowers in the area and stuff like that what trees grew where and it was i was totally immersed in nature study but i always drew kind of as documentation when i was young but also very abstract painting and stuff from very early i took painting classes at the local art center and both parents were involved in going to museums and taking us around the city. Uh, so I could skip school in high school and hang out in the garden of the Museum of Modern Art because I had a pass. My childhood was spent when I could in art centers or museums making work. All the time I could spend there, I spent, but that I didn't spend in nature, I kind of spent in museums. And I always wanted to make interactive pieces where the people change the piece by their presence, by their distance from objects. And yeah, so I was really thinking I was going to make metal sculpture when I went off to Bennington College, but I uh, was already making sculptures with sound and metal, and I hated the grinder when making metal sculpture, so I quickly shifted. And power tools. Huh? Power tools didn't yeah. appeal to me at yeah. all. So that's where sound sculpture came in, but it was also that the early integrated circuits came about, and the Thurman could be made with integrated circuits right about the time I, when I was in high school, and then integrated circuits became voltage-controlled circuits, which was what started the first synthesizers. So all of those could be made. You could have a voltage-controlled circuit, which could be controlled by light sensors or sound sensors or sound itself. All those things happened right at about that time. So there was suddenly the possibility that not just the military was using sensors, which I was very interested in, but regular people could actually build these circuits using all kinds of sensors. So what exactly is like the relationship so of a circuit to like uh, the synthesizer? I had to build little interface circuits so that, it, in other words, if you have a light sensor that's a photoresistor, it's the same as turning a knob often, like bringing up the volume or shifting the timbre or something on a filter. Like a level. It, all those level, level shifts mm -hmm. are made by light, and you can regulate the parameter of how much light you need to change how much sound or how much 
how dark it has to be. You can invert it. And so all of that became possible with integrated circuits. And so I could build these little circuits myself and start to say, this light sensor is giving me the general light, and this light sensor, say, next to it is pointed at the room where people are moving. The other's pointed just at a wall. And so the difference between the two starts to be an interesting signal all the time about how people are moving their in space. So it was funny, like a couple of weeks ago, this film crew and sound people were at my studio all day. And then towards the end, the sound guy, you know, with his mic on the boom and everything was just like, okay, I'm just going to record silence in the room for about a minute. To take the room noise out yeah. of peace. We all just sat there silently, not moving. And the concept being that he could remove the place from your recording. And why is that so important to people to not feel the real place and then put in a false place? Right. I mean, that that's something. So all that time they were in your room, but they didn't want the sound of your room, which for me would probably be the most important part of the work. And I find that's true with people all the time. Like, so we're recording water and we're two inches from the water, but the water sounds the way it does, not because water makes sound, it's because it's hitting some stone or hitting some stone across the river, some giant wall of stone. And that's what makes the sound interesting is not that it's rippling. I mean, I think it's very, very important to keep the space in a recording. And I guess that's part of how I got involved in working with sound is I would sort of dream of, well, we used to have telephone booths. So I had this dream that we walk, I kept walking into these different booths and they all had wind from outside coming into them and they all sounded like the wind in that space. And I was really interested in how the space transforms the sound and how wind which most people, of course, don't like in their microphones because it stops a mic from working to have it hit by wind. But if you put that microphone, say, in a conch shell, which I often do, on the beach where you're recording, then you hear the sound of the wind as maybe a creature like a little crab in that conch shell would hear it. So a lot of what I'm doing when I'm recording the ocean or the sea or brooks is trying to think of what is some little animal that lives in a shell hearing? How does the shell translate the sound? Do you feel like your work like resists commodification or does it? Well, I would hope that someday museums collect these pieces, but at this point you need an ambitious museum who's dedicated to having experimental work. A museum like the Queen's Museum doesn't really collect art. The modern is starting to collect sound art. They bought their first sound art pieces. They certainly should collect some of these works. I have lots of works with neon and with rocks and copper in storage. These pieces should be collected and archived in museums, but it's so hard to get them. But if, like, say, a room was dedicated to, like, one of your metal pieces on a wall that was connected properly, yeah. someone could just walk into that room and have the same... Experience. Right. Have the total experience, interact yeah. with the wood. Right. And my works 
depending on how close you go, how far you go, they save different sounds. And so the mix in the room is always different. Yeah. And it's the same with the piece of the Queen's Museum. Because the light overhead and the light from the side were always different, the sound was always shifting. If you were lucky and there was a cloudy day and you could hear a cloud pass, you'd hear this incredible spin and shift in dynamic in the piece. If you were standing in front because of the, wall. the cloud would the cloud would pass, change the light coming shift through the, the windows light radically, and everything would it. My sensor system never just responded to one. It was like if this one's higher than that one for how long this takes off and spins. It it wasn't based on the nervous energy of a jittery light shift. It was based on a massive sort of shift. It would move in curves, somewhat like. The way it feels when light shifts on a landscape. So, I, yeah, I I tend to slow down what's the real-time motion so it's not this nervous, jittery motion that often interactive pieces have, but it responds to a whole difference. in the So landscape. it's some more sustained... Yeah, sustained shifts. Mm. And, and you'll find I have a lot of wind-activated pieces. There was a wind turbine in the South Bronx that was solar-powered in the 1980s, and... I did tornado watch pieces in Oklahoma and Chicago and Minneapolis. So pieces during those wind pieces. So this is a, you know, it's a very exciting way to kind of retune into the landscape and the soundscape and erosion and flooding and all these factors that are so prominent in the water, fresh water things like that in our lives that are so important right now, you can tune into if you're tuning into these natural patterns. You can learn more about Liz's work and find out about upcoming installations by visiting her website. We've linked to it in our show notes along with a virtual version of Relative Fields. At Epicenter, we're proud to collaborate with New York City-based artists like Liz, and we're constantly growing our network. So if you're an artist looking to reach new audiences, submit your work at epicenter-nyc.com slash artists. Finally, before we go, our community manager, Daniel LaPlaza, with this week's COVID-19 update. On Monday... The news that the Biden administration will no longer enforce a mask mandate on public transportation flooded our news feeds. And by Tuesday, most major airlines, including American, United, and Delta, announced that they will no longer require masks on flights. So what does this mean for New Yorkers with upcoming travel plans? Can you officially ditch the mask? The short answer is, well, no. First of all, masks are still required on subways, buses, the Long Island Railroad, Metro North, and the PATH train. They're also required in taxis and rideshares inside New York City. The exception seems to be New Jersey Transit, which announced they are no longer requiring riders to mask up. Next, you may need to wear a mask in the airport, depending where you're flying from. Right now, masks are still required inside JFK and LaGuardia. Meanwhile, at Newark International Airport, there is no longer a mask mandate. Finally, the flight. As I mentioned earlier, most major airlines have announced that masks are now optional for passengers. That includes Alaska Airlines, American, Delta, Frontier, JetBlue, Southwest, Spirit, and United. Still, 
You may want to wear a mask or at least have one on hand, especially if you're seeing a spike in COVID cases. To some of us, this news may sound scary, especially with the new variants spreading across New York City. But even though masks are no longer required in many public spaces, it doesn't mean you can't wear one. And even if those around you are unmasked, wearing one yourself still provides some protection. Our advice, keep a mask with you at all times. Be respectful of our neighbors who are immunocompromised and keep up with the latest COVID-related news. For regular updates, subscribe to our newsletter, which is linked in the show notes. And if you have any questions, send me an email at daniel at epicenter-nyc.com. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.